Do you want to advertise on this podcast? Go to podbean.com now for only $1. You can get a 1,000 listens. You can also predefine geographic locations and categories for where your advertisement will run. Start using the most cost-effective advertising campaign now. Go to podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. This is a Sci-Fi Rewind with Kevin Batchelder, Miles P. McLaughlin, and Scott Herzog. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Rewind. This is episode 14. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. And good evening. I'm Miles P. McLaughlin. And we are here to talk about The Thing tonight. And with us, we also have with us, I nearly forgot, go ahead. <laughs> it's Kevin Batchelder. You know, we can't do the show without Kevin. I mean, he's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, you could. You could. I mean, let's face it. Wait, you could, but, you know... We, we, no, we can't because this has been a collaborative effort from the beginning. It just wouldn't be the same. It just wouldn't. Sorry about that, Kevin. No, hey, no problem. It just means we're excited to talk about the movie. That's right. So, uh, how is everything up in the Boston area? Uh, doing very good. Yeah. So far, we haven't really had winter hits, so I'm keeping my fingers crossed that that holds out till March. No, <laughs> and, and they. Then winter can just let loose. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, by then it'll be warm enough, so it won't matter, but that's okay. <laughs> Unrealistic, I know. Right, right. You feel the same way, though. It's bound to hit. Yeah, it's been quite nice. Nice mm-hmm. here. Again, it's a bad sign when we start talking about the weather. <laughs> well, actually, because it relates to the location setting for it, this movie. That's it what does. It does. Come on, the thing. We're talking about Alaska or Antarctica. Where, where, where does the John Carpenter's take place? In? Is it... I see North Pole. It was it was in Antarctica. Antarctica. Well, yeah, North North Pole is opposed to the '50s version, which was South Pole, or vice versa. I know they're on two different poles. Vice versa, because the uh, '50s is in Alaska. So unless oh. Alaska moved, so <laughs> I think that's probably the way I'm going to say. Anyways, we're here to talk about a thing tonight, which we're very excited about. John Carpenter's a thing. Um, before we get too far, we do have a movie that we kind of dilly-dallied about doing, uh, but we're going to share one that we're excited about doing for the next time, and we would love to have you listeners on board discussing it with us. This, is, of course, is 12 Monkeys, uh, the movie starring Brad Pitt, a young Brad Pitt and Bruce Willis, mm-hmm. and uh, a very good movie, if I recall. It's been a while since I've watched this. I'm looking forward to rewinding this. Did you you, you yeah, saw Twelve Monkeys? I, I no, I haven't. So you uh, haven't. Well, no. this will be a good one for you, then. right? And uh, and Kevin, you saw it, right? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I've seen it on some of the movie channels the last few months, but I haven't been able to 
sync myself up with when it's starting. So I've like caught little bits here and there and said, no, I got to go back to the beginning. So this would be a good yeah. way to do it. Yeah. I forget the premise of it. I, I, I have a feeling it's kind of this post-apocalyptic world, but I, I'm not sure. But we, we, we like some good post-apocalyptic stuff, you know, bring on the end of the world. We're good. It's 2012 after all. Yes. <laughs> and, our Mayan theme, I guess. Right, right. Our Mayan. In fact, maybe that should be, maybe that's what we do this year. Like all movies that are set on like, a dystopic <laughs> future, like, you know, The Road, we're going to have to watch. And, <laughs> and uh, I don't know what other movies are out there. Mad Max or. Is Book of Eli yep. a dystopian? Oh, Book of Eli would have to be in there. That'd be a great one to review sometimes. I love Book of Eli. Yep. Like so we, can, we can spend all year getting very depressed, and then at the end, <laughs> when the world doesn't end, we'll be really upset. Right, right. Of course, we could just watch Charlie Jade for that. <laughs> oh, we did that already. At least some of us, Miles. <laughs> well, I can only handle so much. Oh, only, only so much. Well, let's talk about the thing. That's why we're here tonight. And uh, why don't we start by just talking about some of our initial impressions, and we'll get into some other, I don't know, some other stuff about it. So, Miles, why don't you go ahead and, um, or maybe we should start with someone that's a little that I think is probably a little bit more fan of the movie than maybe you are, Miles. Kevin, tell us, what was your impression going back and rewatching The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing? Uh, it was, it's, it's a movie that I think holds up very well myself. I'm a big fan of it. It's, it's uh, obviously very well respected and, and has some great uh, actors, character actors and well-known faces. And uh, It's one of those movies that I see very much as a, uh, it morphs a bit from looking like very much sci-fi in the first 30 minutes to much more horror come the second half of the movie so i i think uh, it holds up very very well both uh, visually and story-wise so i i really got a kick out of watching it and checking all the dvd extras to go with it as well you know you, you mentioned that it was kind of like horror or has this horror-esque thing that kind of happens about partway through it and then continues through to the end of the film and i think the 50s movie is also kind of hailed as being like one of the first horror movies if, if I if I understand that correctly, is that correct, Kevin? Do you know? Uh, I'm not sure, but it is uh, thought of as a really good movie. I know that I've seen I've seen it. It's been several years since I have. Obviously, at that point, a much different uh, movie in the sense of more of an you know an alien uh, entity being a little more there, but they didn't have as much obviously uh, effect type things that they could do. So that's the direction they went. But I remember that one having some great performances in it too. Very very. Yeah, well, that's that's true. Uh, Miles, tell us your thoughts about the thing. Rewatching it. Oh, you never watched it, so watching it for the first this time. Is, yes. Um, well, it was good. It, one thing I like about watching these movies that go back twenty, thirty years ago. It's just it's just a fun um, trip down memory lane and seeing what you know what was cool back then um, and things that would be you know kind of retro now. Um, watching Kurt Russell play play uh, chess on an old video game. Um, that one uh, African-American guy listening to some Stevie Wonder on, on an old, uh, uh, you know, cassette tape boombox, one that I had uh, owned very similar, you know, back in the day. Um, so it's always it's always fun to go back and just see um, what, what, you know, what it was like back then. Um, I thought the – I liked the opening. The opening was, was, was interesting that – I wasn't sure if the helicopter were, was made these poachers and they're just you know chasing after a wolf, um, and I'm you know first I'm rooting for the wolf, 
Um, but, um, but I'll, I'll, honest with you, I, 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 this is not going to be one of the movies I like so much as a whole. Um, I, I kind of think the alien, the, the protagonist was a little bit, you know, one dimensional. Um, I mean, the, the effects still look pretty cool and even humorous, but, um, but as far as the, the protagonist, you know, the, the antagonist, um, not, a, you know, didn't think much of the antagonist, the thing of the, himself, because they didn't communicate with him. He didn't, the thing didn't communicate with them so much, except, you know, just try to run away or, or, or was killing them. But, um, um, so yeah, this is not going to be too high on my list as, you know, movies that I'll probably go watch again. Mm. Yeah. Uh, for me, it, I watched it, and when I was watching it about a, about 15 minutes into it, I said, I've seen this movie before. Um, and I realized that what had happened is I'd watched about a half an hour of it. I think it was streaming. Maybe it still is streaming. It's still streaming on Netflix? No, I had to uh, rent it off Amazon. But, yeah, it was yeah. streaming at one time off of Netflix. Mm-hmm. And then I had watched part of it and then ended up being distracted or getting tired or just didn't hold my interest. Uh and then I said, oh, and then about halfway through, it was like a new movie for me again. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some interesting parts about the movie, but I, I tend to uh, – I'm falling a little bit in your side here, Miles. So it's, it's, it's a sci-fi diner against the uh, Tuning into Sci-Fi TV podcast tonight. No, uh, <laughs> but no, it's, it's – it's, it just didn't – it's not as good as some of the ones that we have rewound for, for personally. Like – you know, when you look at movies like Enemy Mine and you look at, you know, aliens that, you know, are, are kind of around the same era, those movies are have much, has far more depth. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet this is hailed as a classic. And I think because of that, I am glad I watched it. But it's not, again, as strong as maybe some of the other ones we've done. Yeah, I, I kind of think of it as a popcorn movie. I mean, um, you know, some really good action. Um it, it, there's a lot of good familiar faces from back in the day. Um, obviously, Kurt Russell, but not just him, but Wilford Brimley. I just never think of Wilmer, you know, he, he's the Quaker Oats guy. I mean, uh, oh. you know, but he, here he is, uh, you know, he, he's he, he plays this uh, badass and he sabotages everything so nobody can leave the base. And um, uh, you get see young Keith David um, in this. Um, uh, for 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 listeners, Keith David, um, you may not know his his you know his face so much because, but you'll know his voice. I mean, he, he's lent his voice to a, you know a lot of animated stuff. Um, but he but if anybody watched the TV series um, uh, The Cape, he was the like the circus master in right. there. Uh, but right. he's he's done tons of stuff. But this is probably one of his earliest roles. He's he's a, he's a lot younger in this this film. Um, Donald Moffat, another uh, um, good character actor, done lots of stuff. It was good seeing him again. Um, and there's another actor in there. I, I recognized him from L.A. Law. I forget his his name eludes me at the moment. But so there's a lot of familiar faces from you know from TV shows and movies uh, uh, from the past that was was in here. So it was kind of, that was really cool to see. Hmm. Very nice. Any thoughts? Now, do you think uh, a question for you guys, if you don't mind, is is Absolutely. do you think part of the reason why it maybe wasn't as high on your uh, film list is because it turned very much into a horror movie more than a sci-fi movie? 
not for me. I mean, the horror part didn't bother me so much. It was, it was just that there was not a lot. You know, there was there was no communication with with the thing or the aliens. So, you know, it was just uh, the 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 interaction was very you know very one dimensional. It was it was just them against it and vice versa. Um, you know that, that that you know. So the, the horror part didn't bother me so much. I mean, the fact that he's out to either you know you know assimilate you know and then just try to leave or whatever. Yeah, for, for me, I don't, I'm not sure that it was off my radar because of horror or not. In fact, I'm not sure that I really knew much about this uh, movie. Uh, but maybe this was off. It was kind of off my radar as about as much as Aliens was. I'd heard about the thing, and I'd never watched, of course, Aliens prior to us kind of doing that whole rewatch. And then I watched all four of them and, and really enjoyed the experience. But it didn't. Um, but this one, this one, just never made it into my movie playing list for whatever reason. Maybe I didn't know much about it, or it was an eight, early eighties movie, and there was there's uh, there's obviously tons of other stuff to watch, right? Um, so the heart doesn't bother me. Although um, I don't tend to gravitate to, there's some horror that I don't gravitate to. Like uh, Kevin, have you seen uh, Event Horizon? Yes. Mm-hmm. So that would be a movie that I did not enjoy when I watched it. I mean, I I love Sam Neill. Totally looking forward to Alcatraz when he comes out with that. You know, mm-hmm. um, that was totally on my watch list right now. Um, but but Event. Event Horizon, I was like, oh, they're at the edge of a black hole, and uh, you know, it's a space one, and this is sci-fi. And talk about a movie that was pretty, uh, you know, occultic horror. That would that when I, I watched it, I think I watched that movie like at night by myself, and uh, and I fast forwarded through about forty five minutes of the movie because I couldn't handle it, <laughs> you know. Uh, but this one didn't quite have that feel for me as far as horror goes, but. I don't yeah. know if that answers no, it's just your question. Curious, it's a curious thought because obviously we can't all love every movie in matter. Oh, absolutely. In fact, no matter whether it, it, it's, it's considered a classic or not or on a right. top list. I mean, I always want to check them out myself, but that doesn't mean I love them all. So it's always yeah. interesting to see yeah. what it is that you know pushes a movie up or pushes it down a list for someone, you know? Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that, that is kind of redeeming uh, of this is, is Snake Plissken in this movie and uh, – and of course, um, you know Kurt Russell and his role in it. Uh, you know, I haven't seen uh, other than Escape from L.A., Escape from New York, in uh, Stargate. In uh, what was the miracle? What was that hockey movie he did? Uh, was it called The Miracle? I don't remember. Uh, might again? Uh, might have been Miracle yeah. on Ice. Maybe. Yeah. So, anyway, he did that, and then this is the only other movie I've seen him in. I know he's done a lot of other stuff, but I haven't really watched a lot of Kurt Russell. So it was good to see him kind of in this role and. See a younger one, and probably my one of my favorite scenes with him is when he dumps the whatever he's drinking in the computer. Yeah, <laughs> cheater. <laughs> now, speaking of Kurt Russell, so you haven't seen him in uh, Big Trouble in Little China? I have not. Oh, you have to watch that one. Got to put oh. that one on a on a watch list. Okay, really well, fun movie. Yeah, well, and I, hear I mean that's why yeah. it's from around the same time. I mean, he did so many iconic, like you said, Snake Plissken and Escape from New York, and then he did this movie and Big Trouble in Little China in '86, which is a completely different character than either of those first two. You know, I mean, I, I love how he's really able to play so many different styles of characters. Hmm. Yeah. Anyways, 
you know, he was one of the redeeming things about this movie as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, again, I say this, it makes it sound like I hate this movie. This movie was not a god-awful movie for me. It just wasn't. We've just seen so many good ones. Yes, yeah, I, we see, yeah, I <laughs> well, agree. true. Yeah, <laughs> we've seen some really good ones, and now I'm watching this, and I'm like, eh, it was okay. I'm glad I watched it. I can now say with absolute certainty that I've seen the, the thing, and, mm-hmm. and I'm glad about that. Now, Kevin, did you see the, the I guess there was, was it a remake or was it a prequel, the one that came out this past, last year? I haven't seen that newest one, but mm-hmm. it, from what I've understood, from what I've read, is it's actually a prequel. It's a story of the uh, that Norwegian team that we never really get to see mm-hmm. what happened to them. So it's, it's considered a prequel uh, so that in that sense it's not really duplicating this one, but it's in mm-hmm. the same universe. Yeah. But I haven't seen it yet. It's on my Netflix queue. I just haven't got to it yet. Yeah. Well, and talk about a uh – the Norwegian team doesn't even come into the 50s one. You know, it's just a separate base that they kind of all end up at the same base. Well, uh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think one of the things that, uh, for me, grabbed me for this particular one was the the setting. Uh, You know, uh, trying to put myself in the shoes of any of these guys. You know, if you were stuck out in a you know, godforsaken place like this with no support, and no escape, and, and you're relying on a bunch of people, that many of which you probably might not even like very much, and you had a situation like this. I mean, this is one of those creepy ones where you go, you know, how would I deal with that? And how bad is this whole situation where you've got this, uh, like we said, assimilating alien that literally could take not only just kill you, but could be literally able to take over the planet for crying out loud and, and what are you going to do about it are you going to be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice I kind of right. I like to get in the head of the characters a bit there's a little bit cer- certainly I think one of the things that made this movie interesting was the fact that you know how the how each of them react to this to this situation um, there's a little bit of the, there's a little bit of a witch hunt going on at one point um, they you know there's a little bit of what if and you know you know the people that want to get out of there, and the people people that know that they can't get out of there, and uh, to the cryptic ending that I can't wait talking to you about because I think that was one of the uh, ambivalent, ambivalent yet interesting points of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, so there, there certainly had there certainly are some redeeming parts of this movie. But. Question though, um, maybe this is you know. Why would they need flamethrowers? <laughs> um, I mean, been, this has been bothering Miles all night. By the way. I mean, now, now flamethrowers are cool. Don't get me wrong, but it's just you know, for a, a science, science team, a science team. I mean, um, I just well, you know, you, want, you really want to. It's cold up there, and you want to have a really good toasted marshmallow. It's going to come in handy, right? Right. right. <laughs> well, and, 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 and you know, you know, I mean, it's, it's cold up there. They might need another source of heat. I mean. Uh, or should we yeah, say down there down the shack, you know, It's an easy way to burn down the whole shack so you have firewood or something. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It'll start a fire faster, too. You know, <laughs> it was interesting because in the, in the original 58 version, I believe, um, you know, they, they certainly – there's elements that are the same. I mean, the, there's a, certainly – there's this army kind of presence there, but it is a science outpost. And I felt like one of the things they didn't do a very good job explaining is what the army was doing at the site. They don't explain what the outpost is actually used for. Or, or maybe I'm wrong. Kevin, do they really explain what the outpost is really there for? No, it's not really played up enough. You see a lot of – like you said, you see a lot of equipment. You hear a lot of science-type talk. But 
it, it's never really any exposition that really says, hey, we're here to study, you know, uh, ice samples right. from 20,000 feet under the ground right. or something. I mean, until you get to the point where they see the spaceship thing, uh, you really don't know exactly what's going on there. They do right. kind of drop you into that fast. Yeah. I mean, it does, let's face it, with the opening scene, like you said, with the whole helicopter chase and the dog and then shooting everybody, you're, you're kind of don't even get much of a chance to ramp up. You're just dropped right into a mess right. right off the bat. Which is kind of cool. I think that's, you know, when you talk about one of the things that drew this movie, drew us into this movie, certainly drew us in a lot faster than the 58 version did. The 58 version does do a much better job of setting us up as far as the science and explaining why the army's there and the news reporter that's there. But this movie, uh, John Carpenter's, they drop you right in. They drop you right into the scene, and you're in a helicopter, and you're chasing a dog, and you don't know why, and you want to know why, and it's bringing up a lot of questions, and you know, and uh, and why are they trying to grenade the dog and end up grenading the helicopter, and you know, and you know here, and then the one guy gets shot, and why are they shooting the guy instead of the dog? I mean, there's just a lot. There's a lot going on in the first five, ten minutes of this movie. Yeah, I think some of that too is style because I mean a lot of the movies back in the fifties. I'm kind of mainly thinking about a lot of the creature movies and sci-fi since that's what I paid a lot of attention to. You know, they spent a lot more time talking. You got more character development. Yeah. You, you got introduced to people and locations before, usually before they started giving you a, uh, an end of the world scenario or, or whatever. So it's it's definitely part of that. I think is the difference. You know, of uh, twenty plus years of filmmaking. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, yeah. Well, let's get into a little bit of some stats. Oh, by the way, what, one thing before we get into the stats, you mentioned the dog at the beginning. Um, the dog at the beginning is actually a different dog than the one they used throughout the entire movie. I think the one was named Ned or Zed is the one they used throughout the whole movie, but the, the, the dog you see them chasing at the beginning is a painted dog. They painted oh. him to look like the other dog. I guess I don't know. Better runner. <laughs> yeah, better uh, maybe. <laughs> well, I wonder how, how, how trainable huskies are. I mean, those were huskies, weren't they? Uh, it was a. Uh, I, I had this. Let me go back to it. I did have this. It was right there and down there. Um, it is. This is part of my trivia. Oh, so here's a little bit of trivia. I'll, I'll have some trivia for you later on. The Norwegian dog in the film was named Jed. He was a half wolf, half husky breed. Jed was an excellent animal actor, never looked at the camera, the dolly, or the crew members. Jed, however, is not the dog seen at the beginning of the chase scene, where the Norwegian is trying to shoot him. Per Carpenter's commentary, this is another dog painted to look like Jed. Hmm. So, a little bit of a side note. Oh. Yeah. Things you didn't know. All right, well, yeah. so... <laughs> Uh, well, let me give you some stats for this movie. We, of course, typically do this somewhere in our podcast. This movie, when it came out, earned a whopping $20 million, which, of course, is nothing in today's uh, day's time. And I'm not sure how much this was back in, you know, the early 80s. Do you know, Kevin? Was this a, was this a decent oh, amount? Oh, no, I'm not sure. You know, the whole conversion, present-day dollars, that's a, good, that's a good question. I'm really not sure. I mean, I don't even think I saw it in the theaters myself. I think this yeah. was definitely a uh, HBO or... You know, VHS before I even got a chance to see it. Well, distributed by Universal, came out on June 25th of 1982. Um, And uh, it it was in the theater, I think, four four weekends. 
Wow. 910 theaters. So not a very big release. But, mm-hmm. No, um, not at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's it. That's all That's all I have for the stats as far as it goes. So nothing international, even if it, if it was even released internationally. Mm. So nothing nothing overwhelming about it no, as far no. as really, really. box office sales. Well, let's talk about some um, some scenes. We kind of have kind of you know gone here and there in this, but let's talk about some scenes that really stood out to us. Um, Kevin, do you want to go first and talk about a scene that really maybe was powerful to you that you really enjoyed? Oh, there there, there are several iconic ones, I think, but the one that probably has stuck with me ever since I first saw it is the one when uh, they're not sure that Kurt Russell's character is doing the blood test. Mm-hmm. Um, and they and they end up tying a bunch of guys to the the couch or whatever, and they're slowly but surely trying to figure out who's still human. Right. I mean, the tension level there, and then once they do determine which one it is, and it starts, you know, morphing, and the people are still tied <laughs> just a couple of feet away from it. I'm like, that's where if you put yourself in the shoes of those people, you just want to rip your skin off. Oh, <laughs> that yeah. would just creep the hell out of you. So and oh. that one always sticks to me because I just that's not a situation where you'd want to be in. <laughs> Absolutely, I think, that, and I and I would agree with you. That's one of the scenes that certainly uh, kind of had you on the edge, and you're like waiting when he when he stick that piece of metal in that heated metal, and mm-hmm. and you he, he push it in, you wait for it to react, and then when that one does, it just uh, yeah, you do feel for the guys that are tied to that chair. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think uh, one of the scenes that really that really sticks out to me is when the um, is when they, you know, they deal with the person that they put in that shack and that whole thing. Uh, what is it? The, is it the doctor they put in the shack? Yeah, Doctor Blair, yeah, so, Wilford Burns' yeah, like, character. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, the whole thing when he discovers about the like the mutation rate of this thing and how fast it moves, uh, and then to have him end up being one, you know, and him like building a secret ship underneath the lab is kind of interesting. That whole. Thing. But again, that played more into like the sci-fi bent, maybe the more the horror. But, yep, very but, true. Yeah, uh, Miles. Well, I don't. This is a memorable scene for me. Um, when the I forget the character and actor's name, but basically he drops over dead, and they put him on the uh, the bed, and they you know they open up his shirt to find out you know can they revive him or whatever, and. Um, well, his chest just opens up and, and bites off Richard Dystart's character's arms off. And, right. Uh, you know, I just it was it was uh, maybe it was shocking for the time, but I mean now it was just kind of humorous. I mean, just seeing that happen, and then when they neutralize him or whatever, his his head falls off, and then these legs grow out of the, his head, and they crawls off, and then they flamethrower that you know this you know. And this, he kind of jumps around. As yeah, it there. just. Uh, Claire.
That's memorable scene. You either thought it was kind of silly. Uh, yes, that's <laughs> probably right. Uh, you know, one of the scenes, Kevin, you mentioned the, that one freaking you out. That, that the tying to the chair. The other one that freaked me out is when the dog goes into the pen initially, and mm-hmm. then begins to morph. And you see, and it's the first time you really see the thing, and you see the legs kind of shooting out and grabbing stuff. And I'm, and the people are standing outside that cage, and I'm, I'm like. I'm practically yelling at the screen, run, get out of there now, because I wouldn't be standing there. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that's when we really start to see the the creep factor and the grossness and, and everything else really just, that's when it really starts to ratchet up from there forward. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's again, I, the visuals on it for me, I, I still remember them exceptionally well. Uh, because it really kind of made an impact on me. I remember early on when I was seeing it uh, uh, way back, probably mid-'80s timeline. It's funny talking a little bit about uh, the scene Miles was uh, mentioning. There's an excellent, if you watch the, the collector's edition DVD, there's a, close to like an 80-minute feature of, of the whole making of this movie, interviews with everybody and, and lots of details, uh, which is very fascinating for me. I watched it on, on this particular go-round and probably haven't seen it be him forever but uh they talked about that scene and how they literally had a uh, a stand-in actor who had lost you know just had stumps for arms and did not have the lower extremities and they put on like gel-based items so it literally could be you know snapped off into the stomach and and everything to really make it look so uh, at the time as accurate as possible so they didn't have to do cutaways and all so it's the, the making of is is a real interesting thing if you want to learn the tricks that were done certainly back in the 80s for special effects or creature effects. Stan Winston did a lot of the stuff and, and you know he's you know one of the top-notch guys and everything else in terms of some of the design for the the thing creatures and things. It's it's fascinating stuff to watch. Well, for 1982, I mean that, that was probably groundbreaking as far as effects goes. I mean that today that would have been. You know, green screened and CGI'd. Oh yeah, CGI'd I mean, everywhere. Yep. Yeah, I'm sure the 2011 movie was. Mm-hmm. So I mean, At least uh, to some extent. So for you know, for 1982, I mean, the effects were really good. You know, one of the things that stood out for me in this movie when I started watching it is that the opening music. I wrote that it kind of reminds me a little bit of Enemy Mine and a little bit of Aliens too. Um, I think it was the opening drum beat, especially. They had that drum beat. It almost sounds like the the pulse of you know when the aliens are approaching in Aliens Two. It had a little bit of that feel, and I know this came out prior to Aliens Two, but it had that. It had just had a little bit of feel to it. Um, yeah, I got to admit for the for this particular movie, soundtrack didn't really make an impression on me. Not that that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it didn't really kind of stick out yeah. like it has in some other movies we've discussed. Yeah, the only the only thing with the soundtrack that I did think about is that there's that long droning music when the aliens kind of on the prowl, and they don't use it every. They weren't consistent in it, but when they did have it, like when the dogs walking around, there would be that music playing. Yeah, yeah. So that, that that's, that's really my only notes about the music. So, but it's funny because it is memorable enough to me that when you say that, I can hear it in my head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that says something for it, I guess. But, um. Any other scenes? I mean, I did mention the whole uh, 
Kurt Russell playing the dated chess, you know, the very dated computer chess uh, simulation. And um, it's interesting when when they think he is the um, he's been um, compromised, and, right. and and they're they're going to you know somebody has a flamethrower and and uh, you know Kurt Russell comes in and he has like couple sticks of dynamite in his hands like you know go ahead you want to you know you want you want to take me out you're gonna take us all out i mean just uh um you know kurt russell's character i mean for you could tell that you know he probably had severe cabin fever at the beginning of the movie um but uh he 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 seems to like take over you know you know as far i mean he's just he's just a helicopter pilot but i mean they sort of, you know, follow his lead, you know, through the whole thing. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting, I think, too, you're talking about, uh, you were a little earlier, Miles, about the, you know, dating it and, uh, you know, making you think of those times. I mean, can you imagine being back at a, like I said, an, an outpost? Like, I mean, today we know the, the Internet is everywhere and we've got uh, media consumption on everything from our TVs to our toasters. But I mean, back then, all I really basically have is that giant uh, top loading VHS player with a bunch of VHS tapes of stuff they've seen probably 17 times. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, talk about uh, cabin fever and not even having anything. I just uh, got a good chuckle out of that. Uh, that's how you'd have to fill yourself with entertaining stuff is a bunch of VHS tapes. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, definitely. We, we, we would probably, we would probably have, like you said, we would, we would have more things to kind of occupy us more, but. You probably still find yeah. reason to get cabin fever. I, I love the huge computers that they had there. Mm-hmm. You know, the huge big mm-hmm. wall-to-wall computer, the, the big wall-to-wall computers. Mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of fun. A little nod to some of the gray, the gray computers, the gray computers, I guess. Um, um, <clears throat> but I guess it looks like for 1982, these guys had a pretty good. I mean, they, I, I thought I saw other another video game in there. I don't. Know, I don't remember which video game they had in there, but it looks like they had something else in there too. So, um, looks like they were, you know, pretty pretty taken care of. Yeah, I did think for being in Antarctica that the walls were a bit thin. Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> was pretty convenient at that point when they break through the wall. It's like hmm, that sure will look like simple poster board or something. Right, now. right. It's like. <laughs> Drywall, drywall in Antarctica with no insulation, and let's go busting through these things. The same way when they put the Wilford Brimley character out in that little hut, I'm thinking it's got to be like what 100 below, and he's just like sitting out there with a tiny little space heater. I'm like, how the hell is he going to survive? Right, in, in Antarctica, especially, right? Yeah, I mean, that's in, in blizzard, a a blizzard condition. So yeah, so but the other thing too that I remembered from a visually a point of view of. Um, catching me was that uh, point in the movie when uh, they did all go out to the like the landing site or the crash site for that spaceship when they realized how big it was right and how old it was in terms of how long it had been there i mean that the scope of the movie kind of for me that was what i thought was kind of cool realizing that uh, uh, yeah this was an alien crash and uh, these guys or creatures or organisms whatever we're going to refer to them as are, are you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years or millennia old. Right, right. You know, it's that whole scope. I like, I, I enjoy movies where sometimes they make me feel really, really tiny and unimportant, you know. Yeah, very nice. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, that, and that moment kind of did that for you then. Yeah, yeah, for me, yeah. You know, when they're at the edge of that crash site, the only thing that I thought about, they, they 
one of the shots shows one of the guys standing there in a pink coat. I don't know if you saw that or not, or if it was, maybe it was just the lighting or the way it was, the way I was watching it on my iPad. But it looked like the one guy was in a pink coat. Hmm. Oh, cool. huh. But maybe that's just uh, maybe that's just the way I didn't, re- didn't remember that myself, right, but yeah. doesn't mean he wasn't. That just seemed a bit odd for all these, you know, <clears throat> man, you know, toughing it out in the Antarctic <laughs> in a pink coat. But you never know. But I did, I, I did like that, and that was actually that. That's a difference from the 1958 movie where the alien, you know, crashes and they're immediately on the crash scene. And this one, you know, it's been there for thousands, if not millions, of years, right? And yeah, that, that I would like them them maybe gone into a little more. But I mean, that, that that's where they're. I mean, that was just a plot device for this thing to attack everybody and them deal with it, but. I would have, you know, maybe if this movie was made today, they would have explored that a little more as far as, you know. Here's a question for you guys. Did we really need this thing to be an alien for this movie to be as effective as it was? Um. Well, it's, that's where I think it's interesting that it kind of crosses, like I said, the genres where you, you think you're sitting down for kind of like a sci-fi thing and it turns much more into horror and you realize it's really comes down to a story of people and, and what would you do in a, in a situation like this do you turn on the other people do you trust anyone you know and so forth so the alien aspect of it is really just a plot device to give us a, a simple reason why there could be something that is that life-threatening so quickly involved you know it's a little bit like that classic story of, of you know People who turns on who at what point in a relationship? So I, I don't know. That's a good question, Scott. I guess it would depend on whether you're trying to hook people in of, of who love a certain genre or not. Right. Well, you know, you know, they start out the film and they kind of almost set you up. You know, here's this alien crash, right? And then uh, there's nothing, you know. And then and then you you see the ship, and that's about it. That's about you know as far as it goes. It, it's it's not really a from that end of things. It really is not a sci-fi film. I mean, to a greater. I mean, it's much more horror. It's much more, you know, you know, creature, the unknown creature, the the hidden monster that, that you don't know anything about. Right. Yeah. But like you said, Kevin, it's it's, a, it's kind of a good character piece of seeing. You know, you get these group of guys that have to face this danger. These group of guys have been. You know, been cabin fever shut out, and like you said before, they probably don't all. You know, they're not a group of friends; they're just colleagues, and so they're probably you know there maybe some strong dislike between them all. But so it's it kind of feeds the, the you know suspicion of who is who has been compromised and who hasn't. Yeah. No, I would I would agree with that. I, I do want to talk about. I mean, what. I want to talk about the ending, but maybe before we get there, is there anything else that kind of sticks out in this movie that, Kevin, you want to talk about? Uh, no, I think we've kind of touched on some of the cool scenes and, and like we said, just the character study. It's just uh, fun to see it many, many years later and appreciate what went into to doing it. But as far as you know, components of the movie, aside from the ending, which I had to know for, then I think we've kind of talked it yeah. out pretty good. Yeah, I did like the ending. Uh, as far as the explosions at the end, some great explosions, you know, mm-hmm. you know, blowing the entire thing to hell, and 
you know, stranding two people there. Thought that was kind of cool. And kind of let you know, you don't know if these two guys are going to survive this or, I mean, they blew everything up. So it's like, they'll probably, probably freeze to death, I guess. When this brings up my, the ending quandary that we're in, we're left with these two guys and we don't know 100% that they've killed the thing. Right. I mean, are, are we sure about that? What's your, what's no. your feeling of that? No, not at all in my mind. That's, that's kind of the cool part is, they they took all these drastic steps, which ended up being very similar to what the Norwegian team had to do. But did they have any better success? I don't think so. Because, uh, no, I mean, my mind just looks at them and realizes the two of them are there. They don't know if either of them maybe is an alien or is still human. They don't have any place for shelter. They're probably just going to freeze to death right there staring at each other. Right. You know, I, I think it's kind of a cool, ambiguous way to do it myself. Yeah, certainly ambiguous. And maybe a cryptic cryptic ending which makes it makes me wonder why there hasn't really been a sequel done to this movie um, we do a prequel you know but where's the sequel for this one mm-hmm. um, especially today I think they, they could do a much stronger job at the horror if they want to make this a horror film they could certainly do it um, yeah I think like you just kind of alluded to though I think if this kind of a movie had come out uh, in today's or the more current Hollywood uh, and it you know, if this did okay, then they would have just jumped on the idea of a sequel. But I mean, I know you know someone like John Carpenter, you know, had a bunch of movies going back in the early '80s, so he was quickly on to some other uh, topic, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, in terms of why there was never one, that's a good question. I haven't paid that close attention to the myth arc to yeah. to know myself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, any other thoughts before we uh, move into a little bit of trivia for this thing? I will test your – probably maybe Kevin's geekness especially, but maybe your geekness too a little bit, Miles. <laughs> All right. The uh, Anything else? No, I was going to say fire away. Fire away. Make me fire look away. bad. All right. I, I will. I will definitely. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, okay. So the uh, – this is an easy one for you, but can you name the short story of the author that the thing is based off of? I don't know. Uh, neither do I. Okay. They actually, um, in the original 58 version, actually have it in the credits. Um, but it's based, it's the classic short story, Who Goes There?, um, by the edit, by science fiction editor John W. Campbell Jr. He's not credited in the DVD version until the end of the credits. So apparently in the new one, but in the old one he was. But I do know that they mentioned that short story a few times in some of the uh, featurette stuff, but I sure. can't say it's stuck in my head at all. Yeah. Um, uh, do you know who the voice of the computer was. It was a female voice. Yep. I don't know the actress's name. I'm going to guess only because he often had her involved in stuff that it was Adrian Barbeau. Um, it was, uh, it was Adrian Barbeau. Oh, very good. The wife of director John Carpenter. Yep. Yeah, yep. so. she's usually got a role, large or small, in almost every one of his films. 
since she wasn't on screen, that's why I guess she was the voice. Yeah, as far as I mean, there was no no women in this film. <laughs> yeah. Oh, let's see. What other? Do I have any other good trivia here for you? Um, let's see. There's. Oh, do you know what the tentacles that Clark sees in the dog cage are made of? No, don't I don't remember that one. Yeah. Nope, it was whips. They actually use whips. But there's a character uh, named Mac and another one named Windows in this film. You mm-hmm. know this? But they <laughs> but, but this but it was but it was since it was made in eighty two, it was purely coincidental that this happened. <laughs> it's kind of fun. Yeah, I did remember that. I didn't yeah, Windows, okay. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the radio didn't put, the, guy didn't was... put them together. <laughs> <laughs> I liked Windows. He was actually one of my favorite characters. I don't know why I disliked him. <laughs> of course he's knocked off quite a bit. Uh, one of the few films to not start out with the Universal logo. Which is kinda cool. Uh, I don't know if there's anything here. Um, I think that's it. There was some there's some other small stuff. Smokey the Bear sign can be seen somewhere in it. All right. Um, John Carpenter considers this to be the first of his Apocalypse trilogy. I guess Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness comprise the other two parts of the trilogy, which I haven't seen either of those. Have you seen either of those? I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, I was I was usually watching more of his other more visible movies like you know, Christine and some of the other stuff, especially in the early to mid eighties that he did. Yeah. Did he do They Live? Uh yes he did. Okay. Yeah. Um this movie was upstaged and one of the reasons it did so poorly at the box office was E. T. Released a few weeks earlier. So Yeah, E. T. was definitely hot back then. Yeah. Definitely was. Mm-hmm. Um uh, Oh, an X-Files episode named Ice, I remember this episode, was a direct homage to this film. Did you, did, were you an X-Files yes. man? Uh, Huge. Yeah, yeah. Huge. And this is, yes. when they said it, I was like, oh yes. The moment they mentioned Ice, I'm like, this is definitely it. Yep. I no, it was. That, uh, yeah. That was early. Wasn't that early season one of X-Files too? Yeah, it, was, it wasn't early. It was like season one or season two or something like that. But Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. There was also where was there was another uh, people are probably yelling at their MP3 players right now. There was another uh, genre show that had a similar theme not that long ago. Uh, I'll probably remember it after we hang up from our call. <laughs> How many gunshots are fired in the movie? It's a whole bunch at the beginning with the with the quote dog slash wolf. Um, some later on, I, I have no idea because it's mostly flamethrowers, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Uh, fifty-two gunshots. Oh. Fifty-two. And just a little bit of one other piece of trivia, then we'll go into some listener feedback, and that is that um, Heath David wears gloves throughout most of the film. The reason is anyone know the reason? Didn't know if it came up in the extras. He had broken one of his hands in a car accident and needed to cover up his cast. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, 
believe that's about the interesting thing. There's a lot of others. There, there was one. Um, the film was originally banned when released in Finland. So I thought that was kind of interesting. They don't like their violence in uh, Europe, so. I guess not. All right. Um, let's move into, I guess, some listener feedback that we had. And why don't we start with an audio comment that came in from Kalis. Now, Kevin, you did hear this, right? Yes. All right. So I'm going to play this so that Miles can hear it too, and then we'll talk about it. So just give me a second. We'll play it and listen to this. The Thing was a great movie that was more than just a monster flick. The monster for me was just really an element that helped move the story forward. The real object of the story was how 12 men, who knew one another reasonably well, became more and more paranoid and suspicious of each other. In other words, it was a study in how relationships develop, or rather break down when an unknown element is introduced, especially in a situation that involves isolation. The setting was just as important as the creature. Director John Carpenter did a great job of emphasizing the conditions of isolations where the crew of the camp really need to rely on each other to survive. The real monster was paranoia. But what of the creature? And can it be called a creature? As Dr. Blair discovered with his computer study, This entity was assimilating every other living thing it came into contact with on a cellular level. In my mind, it is a foregone conclusion that this entity still exists after the film is finished. Did destroying the camp and burning everything in sight really destroy all traces of the thing? Could they really destroy every cell, thus ensuring the safety of the people of the Earth? As MacReady and the doctor discovered, The Norwegians evidently tried to do the same thing that the Americans did by blowing up their camp, with dismal results. The Thing is a great open-ended style of storytelling that seems to be all too rare in movie-making in today's era of instant gratification. Well, there it is. Kaplop! So, Kalis, thank you so much for uh, sending this call in to us. I really appreciate it. And giving us your thoughts on the thing. Um, I, I, did you have any thought, initial thoughts off of this, Kevin? Well, first off, I just love it when we get such detailed, well-thought-out feedback that uh, you know covers things as well or better than we do. <laughs> oh, man. He gave some really big insights that we didn't even you know, discuss on. That right. was good. Yeah, no, it's it's an excellent uh, excellent set of things to think about, and, and uh, obviously someone who really appreciates uh, the movie a great deal. Uh, definitely a little bit more than uh, Miles and I did, I guess. Right. I mean, well, he saw something. I mean, and Kevin, you you definitely alluded to this. I mean, I mean about the the, the real monster wasn't the thing. It, I mean, if if you look at the movie as the thing is a plot device to explore how are these men going to deal with uh, deal with this situation deal with each other yeah they know each other they, they've been friends for a long time and and here comes paranoia the mm-hmm. real monster right right their own paranoia and fears and uh, so yeah I mean that's, that's an excellent point 
Um, you know, and, and, and the fact that, you know, he sets it here in the ice and, you know, as they kind of talk about, they can't really kill every single molecule of this creature. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, I, uh, any additional thoughts in, in adding to what uh, Kalis had to say? No, I think, uh, very honestly, I mean, we're listening to his thoughts and then when you watch or when you rewatch the movie, it just again shows the the desperate situation and just how uh, very, as we said, uh, dystopian future, because this one is basically saying that we're all screwed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you look at it and say, you know, you know, one of the things that we were, that you kept mentioning, Kevin, is how you kind of put yourself into the actors here. Uh, you kind of put yourself in that situation and say, you know, what the heck would I do? I mean, how would I react if that was, you know, if that was the case? To what lengths would you go? To either preserve yourself or to preserve humanity or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, and I got a real kick. I think it was Miles mentioning or, or the scene when uh, Kurt Russell, when the the gang, the mob mentality, almost thinks that Kurt Russell has has been compromised, and uh, you know he's able to get back in uh, from being locked out outside, and he's got the you know the dynamite or whatever, and you can see his face is just covered in ice, and he's literally freezing to death. And they start to have that little. Uh, Standoff of you know well at some point you're going to sleep and oh I you know I don't sleep and uh, you'll fall asleep first and it's like wow talk about total paranoia guys why don't we take a breath here <laughs> right right definitely kind of like the old you know Russia and the United States who's going to be willing to pull the trigger first yeah well um, I think the other thing that we need to talk about then is uh, there, there's some other comments that came in as well and thanks Jim again for sending that in Jim. Also goes by Kayla, so if we hear referred to refer by both names, that's who we're talking about. Uh, Mike Crate uh, just made a small comment on on our, on our Facebook fan page. He said, "There's nothing to oh, and he's of course is from the Gatecast. For those of you listening, uh, there's nothing new in the thing. There's nothing the new the thing does that Carpenters doesn't do better. I guess he thought maybe we were talking about the most current one." Um, but he goes, I think I prefer The Thing from Another World in terms of the original Who Goes There short story by Campbell. So he, inter- he, he like prefers the 58 version. And I, I know there are some people who do because, I mean, it is uh, very much a classic. Yeah. You know, in, in rewatching it, even though it's a 50th movie, I think if you were to pit the two against each other, for me, I would probably prefer the 58 version. I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm kind of with you there, Creed. Hmm. Best buds, no, but. <laughs> um, and then Colin, of course, sent an email in. Miles, do you want to read this uh, email by Colin? I watched the 19 film the thing last night for the Sci-Fi Diner Rewind show. I, I, I enjoyed it despite its age. Well, the 82 version of the thing, which is a remake of one of the first sci-fi horror films I saw. Back in the old days, we did not have this CGI thingy. Oh no! Back we had to build all the, build them all them things from bits of uh, poly, polyesterine and so on. But did the effects hold up the passage of time? Well, in some instances, yes, and in others, no. There are times when you watch it when you think to yourself, through the wonder of modern eyes, that's so obviously not real. But in some cases, I actually preferred it. All too often, when you watch a modern film, you think that that really that's really bad CGI. But when I first saw this, I was thinking. Holy crap, that head just grew legs. The effects never pulled you out of the picture. I think for the time, John Carpenter did a fantastic job with this movie. When it was released, it suffered from going up against the all-concrete E.T. plus the cult film Blade Runner. Kind of ironic that even to this day, those two films are more popular than this version of The Thing. 
That said, the imagination of uh, Bowden is, is clear, clearly let loose, big time for the alien as he does off the wall, coming up with a matter of combinations aimed at making you feel uneasy. And it does work. Utilizing spider wet forms, snake eel forms, things that growing un- or under the skin, being being violated and having something um, germinate within you. All good stuff to make you squirm. The suspense and bleakness is handled well by a young carpenter and examines how quickly people break down and turn on each other. There is good location work and nice elements of uh, alien use throughout, including the isolated oddball crew at the base, which does remind you of... Uh, of the Nostromo crew and the isolation of space. Mind you, Alien has stood the test of time better. Kurt Russell and Keith David give good performances in the film. I love the ending when you have the, the Mexican standoff. The film just loses its wallop near the end as the creature doesn't look quite as cool as previous incarnations, edging down the B-movie route a touch. But I do like the uh, chest burst scene, which all, all the time was something new and quite extraordinary. I mean, imagine sitting in the, in the cinema and a man's chest bursts open and becomes razor tooth maw. I also like the way Carpenter left it open at the start and the finish. You do not know where the thing came from at the start or why it was killing. And at the end, you don't know if it's dead. Some little trivia for you. The original thing from another world was at the North Pole. This was at the South. To give the illusion of the icy Antarctic conditions, the interior sets of the L.A. sound stages were refrigerated down to 40 degrees Fahrenheit, while well, it was well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit outside. The scene with McReady and Dr. Cooper go to visit the Norwegian camp via helicopter. The bush pout they, they, they used actually turned the controls over to Kurt Russell once the chopper was off the ground. If you watch this shot, you see the, the copter actually wobble. That's Russell taking the controls. Finally, my favorite quote from the movie. Norris's head grows legs and tries to walk away. Palmer says, you've got to be effing kidding. It was a pleasure to rewatch this again, and after all this, even if being slightly older, I was not as scared. Live long in the podcast. Colin. Thank you, Colin, from the UK for sending us in, and uh, quite detailed, uh, some detailed thoughts. He, he, he's got some good observations there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything that stands out to you, Miles? Um. Not, not, not really. He, he, he was, you know, a lot of the same stuff he picked out that, that we picked out that Kalish picked out, um, and I think he agreed. I mean, it was it was, you know, he, he definitely lo- looks at it for the positives. You know, that it was, for first time able, was able to do a lot. And the effects you mentioned the mm-hmm. effects too, like we had mentioned, mm-hmm. and that it was, um, you know, a, a good, good place to see how. This group of guys just deals with, you know, like it's been said, the real monster wasn't the the thing itself. It was these men's own paranoia and fears. Right, right. You've got to be effing kidding me. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great line. Anything to stand out for you, Kevin? No, I agree with him as far as that line. It's still a, uh, you know, it's funny you're talking about some of the aspects of the movie and whether or not you, you take them as believable nowadays, but that line so well known it's it makes you chuckle because it's it's exactly what most of us would say put in that situation and oh, seeing yeah. that happen yeah definitely i, I yeah, thought it was spot inter- on. go ahead no i'm saying it was spot on and, and colin's thoughts are are very uh, uh, true to exactly what we've been talking about and what a lot of people think it's it does it's if you if you remember this fondly then you kind of overlook some of the flaws of uh, special effects or or uh, the script a bit, but uh, it does. It has a lot of good things, but it's not perfect. And you're right; it's kind of been lost a bit in history. Yeah. Uh, by having those two and some other 
just powerhouse movies that were out within a few months of it. Yeah, well, Blade Runner also came out. He mentioned it, and I, I didn't realize that Blade Runner came out at the same time. So around that, yeah, same I think time. it was just shortly after or thereabouts. So yeah, I mean, think about that. It's just obviously going to be lost on the shuffle when you've got the kids going to CET and Blade Runner being the the thought provoking movie that it is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, interesting comparison between this and Alien. Um, kind of the the idea of being an, an isolated base and them. Uh, you know, dealing with this unknown alien form. But. Yeah, that's usually, it, it's interesting how uh, quote-unquote horror movies tend to go one direction or the other, either total isolation where you're screwed because you're by yourself, or they try to drop you in the whole idea of uh, being in the mass of people but no one really noticing what's going on and how, like you said, very much alien or aliens and the thing, the same idea. You're obviously nowhere near your home and it's you against yeah. Very big odds. Right, right. Well, very cool. Well, thank you, uh, Colin. Thanks, Crate. Thank, thank you, Kellis, for sending in all that feedback. Some good feedback. Some good feedback from them. And, well, any final thoughts before we give the thing a send-off here? Miles, not a movie you're going to be watching again right away. Probably not, but uh, maybe I didn't appreciate it as much as I should have after hearing some of our, our listeners uh Share their observations. Yeah, I do feel I'm kind of sheepish in my uh, review of it a little bit. Because <laughs> even though I watched it and there were parts of it I enjoyed, it wasn't my favorite movie. But I'm hearing some people that are giving me some fresh perspective. I I guess I goes up a few notches because of that. They, th- they found some gems that I didn't necessarily right. see in the first right. place. Hey, Kevin, any final yeah. thoughts? No, I think it's like we started talking about uh, at the beginning. Uh, just because it's a classic or – well respected doesn't mean everybody's going to love it uh, movies all hit us each a little bit differently so that's uh, some of the interesting from the discussions is realizing uh, someone else looks at it different than you do yeah all right well thank you so much for joining us here on the sci-fi rewind remember that next next month we will be rewinding what was it 12 monkeys and so we'd love to have you join us in that and uh, we're going to try and uh, get some movies together maybe for a poll again. Maybe it's time for a poll sometime, especially since it took us a – how long did it take us to figure out which movie we were going to do? <laughs> Way too long. Um, yeah, but, the uh, magic of editing, no one else knows but the three of us, but that's now right. they do, Scott. Thanks. Yeah, I know that. Thanks for owning it. Thanks for owning it. <laughs> right. What goes on behind the scenes stays behind the scenes. That's right. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Kevin, where can they find out more about you and the podcast that you do? Uh, we have almost everything listed over at our primary site, which is uh, tuning into sci-fi-tv.com, or if you're more of the movie buff, uh, especially B-movies, go to SaturdayBMovieReel.com for a lot of fun discussions about the not-so-classic movies. And this is almost uh, – is it almost like a mystery science theater type thing when you talk about it? Or do you guys really pay – Yes. No, we is- very much go MST3K in our approach to many of them because uh, we cover sci-fi channel movies and many of the other ones that uh, you do have to often go WTF when you pay <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Definitely. And you, of course, can find us, the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, at scifidinerpodcast.com and on Facebook as well. And uh, you can find many ways to contact us there as well. So I believe that's about it. My, uh, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us tonight. My pleasure. A lot of fun, guys. Yep. And uh, Miles, why don't you go ahead and send us out? Okay. Till next time, good night and good luck.